It was on September 20th, 1918, that Stepan Shamian and the rest of the 26 Baku commissars were executed in the deserts of Turkmenistan. This was a tragic moment for the Bolshevik party in the Caucasus, and specifically, it was a, a tragic moment for those who had participated in the Baku Commune and who had survived, including Anastas Mikoyan. It was by a mere mistake that Anastas Mikoyan, a participant of the Baku Commune, managed to escape the fate of his great revolutionary mentor and friend, Stepan Shaomian, just by, just by kind of a hair, he was able to escape that fate. He was imprisoned, but not executed. My name is Pietro Shakarian, and I am presenting to you the latest episode of Seven Who Made History. Uh, in today's profile, we will be discussing Anastas Mikoyan. So Anastas Mikoyan, to give you an idea, was born in uh, 1895, November 1895, in the village of Sanayin, which is today part of Aloverdi in the Lori Mars of Armenia. And he was born to a, a carpenter family. His father was a carpenter. And, it, you know, it was a nice kind of, uh, you know, traditional Armenian family. His brother, born in 1905, Artyom Mikoyan, later became the famous uh, Soviet aircraft designer, the man who brought us, uh, you know, the MiG uh, fighters uh, series. This was kind of the Mikoyan family, a very, very uh, warm and, and open uh, family. And Mikoyan basically, uh, his, his father wanted his young son to succeed in life. And the fastest way to succeed in life in this uh, Lori region, and Lori at the time was part of Tiflis Gubernia. So this was not, uh, even though this was historically part of Armenia, we have to consider that in 1801, when Eastern Georgia entered the Russian Empire, Lori was part of Eastern Georgia. It was part of Kartli Kakheti. And so it became part of Tiflis Gubernia. And um, what happened is the father of Anastas Ivanovich, basically his father was Hovenes, and you could also rustify that to Ivan, but he decided his son should have a good education. Mikoyan went to the Nersesian school in Tiflis, and then he followed that up with the Gavorgian seminary at Echmiadzin. But in this case, just like many other uh, you know, revolutionaries, future revolutionaries, Mikoyan became involved and interested in the Russian revolutionary movement at this time when he was in school and at the seminary. Now, it's interesting because Mikoyan's worldview was not this internationalist, socialistic worldview. It was a worldview that was socialistic, in keeping with the Russian revolutionary movement, but also nationalistic. So the young, uh, you know, Anastas Ivanovich basically was uh, very much drawn, like many others of his day, to uh, Armenian nationalist currents. So in his memoirs, for example, he recalled reading the writings of Rafi with great pleasure. This was his great, you know, joy in, in his youth. And not only Rafi, other writers as well, too. Um, for instance, Hovenes Tumanyan or Shushani Kurginian, who we talked about on this podcast, let's say, these were the writers that Mikoyan was really attracted to as a young man, as somebody who was kind of coming of age at a period of major transformation in the Russian Empire. And so Mikoyan also, even though he was studying at the seminary, eventually uh, fell away from the faith and became uh, basically non-religious. But still, he retained a respect for religion. You know, his mother was religious after all, so he respected still uh, the church nevertheless. 
And so this was, you know, the young Mikoyan growing up in uh, his kind of revolutionary environment, an environment that was uh, at once both socialistic and, and nationalistic. This is very different, I should stress, from the young Stalin who was at the seminary in uh you know, the Georgian seminary, where, uh, you know, the Georgian church was forced to be part of the Russian church. So the uh, Georgians were not even allowed to really read, Georgian seminarians could not even read their own national language or were not permitted to in the confines of the seminary. So it was subversive to read, uh, you know, let's say, um, uh, Alexander Kazbeki, these kind of writers uh, who were... um, you know, great kind of Georgian uh, authors of the day. So uh, in that context, Mikoyan, though, in the context of the Armenian seminary, could freely read authors and writers of the Armenian language, and he could freely embrace them, authors like, again, Rafi, as, as, as I've said. So what happens is World War I breaks out, and the young Anastasi Ivanovich actually fights in the Armenian volunteer regiment led by Antronik Ozanyan the great Armenian general and hero to the Armenians, and they were, by and large, fighting in northern Iran, as a matter of fact. But then, uh, you know, he ended up in convalescence, Mikoyan, and it was in this period during the war that Mikoyan had a kind of a uh, major, major ideological transformation toward uh, the Bolshevik party. This was, I mean, he had been exposed to these ideas earlier, but it was at this point that he really became uh, you know, a Bolshevik, uh, you know, in convalescence. He also heard the news in Turkey at the time of the fate of the Western Armenians who were being slaughtered, who were being killed in Turkey. And this also had a profound impact on him. It had a very, very profound uh, psychological impact in the sense that Mikoyan, in his writings, constantly stressed that the best future for Armenia was to be allied with uh, Soviet Russia. That if there is a Soviet regime, uh, you know, in Russia, that that this would be the best guarantor for the Armenian security. That the alternative is much worse. And as Mikoyan saw, the alternative was what happened to the Western Armenians in the genocide in 1915. And so if you are in Russian state archives, if you're looking at Mikoyan's memoirs and you look at his writings, he talks about uh, this issue. And this is a very, very significant issue for him. Uh, But Mikoyan uh, became involved in the Russian revolutionary movement. He got involved with the Baku Commune, as I stressed. I mean, he was working as uh, one of the many leaders of this commune in Baku uh, under Stepan Shamian, who he greatly admired as kind of a mentor, as a friend, really almost like as a father figure. The history of Shamian, if you are interested in it, I'm not going to go over it again, but if you go uh, to listen to our podcast on Shamian, I would highly recommend it because it gives you a sense of, of what happened to him, his fate. But his fate had also a profound impact on Mikoyan. As I said at the beginning of this podcast, Mikoyan felt a great sense of guilt that he had been spared while his great hero, Shamyan, had been killed. And so when Mikoyan returned uh, to Baku, in the end, actually, he adopted Shamyan's sons. So you have to think, Mikoyan, he's, his wife actually was Ashken Tumanyan, right? And she was also from Lori. And 
basically, uh, they had five sons in the end. I mean, they had they had Sergo Mikoyan, who was very well known, Stepan Mikoyan, Vano Mikoyan, Vladimir Mikoyan, who actually died in Stalingrad. So if you go to Volgograd today at the at the memorial at Mamayev Kurgan, you're going to actually find the inscription there with Vladimir Mikoyan. This is you know his one son who died, and then also Alexei Mikoyan. So you have five sons, but in addition to those five sons, Mikoyan also brought into the fold the Shamian sons. So there were a lot of sons, a lot of boys in this household. Um, and this is what life was, was like with him and Ashken. And he was very committed to Ashken, by the way. But Mikoyan, uh, what happened is after his experience with the Baku commune, he got he returned to Baku, was involved in revolutionary activity there once the uh, Sovietization of Azerbaijan took place. But then what happened is he was involved with party work in Nizhny Novgorod. So, so Mikoyan, after his experience, his party work in Nizhny Novgorod, he became involved as the, as, as the secretary or the commissar of the North Caucasus Krai. And it was here that Mikoyan really began to kind of practically implement the ideas that his mentor, Stepan Shamian, had kind of developed in terms of Soviet nationality policy. And Mikoyan believed that, first of all, number one, you had to make peace with these different nationalities, kind of bring them together to kind of coexist with each other. And, and so that was point number one. But point number two was also to kind of give them self-governance. If they were resistant to the Soviet or Bolshevik rule, you should give them autonomy. Now, who was within the scope of this Caucasian, uh, North Caucasian uh, region at the time? Well, it included our good friends, the Chechens. So Chechnya never really existed as a state before. It was never really a, like a, a kind of a country. It was just like a region where the Chechens lived. And you also had Ingush too, and you had these different areas. But Mikoyan was the first uh, Soviet leader who said, we should give Chechnya autonomy. We should make Chechnya a separate republic, uh, or North Caucasus Krai. Uh, and so this was one of the major things he advocated, to give the Chechens autonomy at, at this time. From there, he then, uh, under Stalin, he uh, became the Soviet Minister of Trade. He was involved with, uh, basically, uh, you know, the food industry. So everybody knows, I mean, if you're thinking about pakpahak in the Armenian uh, Soviet context or Eskimo pies, uh, people think about Mikoyan or they think about beef steaks, they think about Mikoyan because he helped bring a lot of these Western kind of food innovations to the Soviet Union. He went on tour to the United States to see the innovations there and, and brought that uh, back with him. Um, unfortunately, the, the problem was with Mikoyan. Now, this is somebody who actually was... Uh, you know, a, a supporter initially of the new economic policy, NEP, in the 1920s. I mean, after all, he saw its impact firsthand uh, while working in the North Caucasus. But as time went on in the 1930s, Stalin, who Mikoyan had allied with, uh, became increasingly repressive, as we know, with his policies, with his purges, and so on and so forth. What you had was a scenario, number one, where Mikoyan was forced to participate by Stalin in the repressions in Soviet Armenia. This was already uh, a situation where Armenia was deep in the repressions. Uh, Lavrenti Beria had, had uh, shot Arasi Khanjian. We talked about that on the podcast. And also, he had installed his uh, cronies, Amatuni Amatuni and Mogdusi. So we talked about all these guys uh, on our podcast before. But uh, Stalin was angered by the fact, again, that they had killed Sahakter Gabrielian without telling him. And so he sent Melenkov and Litvin to, um, to Yerevan to kind of put things in order. 
right? And he sent later on, six days later, Mikoyan as well too. So we now know from documents that are held at the FSB Central Archives that I was able to secure from Memorial, the, the Society Memorial in Moscow, that basically Mikoyan, uh, six days later, was sent by Stalin to Yerevan, uh, you know, as well in this, you know, kind of central government intervention. And uh, Mikoyan's task was no, more or less to participate in the change of the government, but also to agree with whatever Melenkov and Litvin wanted, including signing off on increase of Category 1 repressions. Uh, and also basically to sign off on a list of people to be in prison. These would be Category 2 repressions. And on that list, Mikoyan in his memoirs uh, recounts you know, receiving such a list of, of 300 people and saw the name of Danush Shaverdian, a great friend of his, and tried to cross off the name, but it was to no avail. Now, why did Stalin send Mikoyan, of all people, to, to Yerevan. Mikoyan had not really been deeply involved in the Soviet army and politics before this. But Stalin sent him because Mikoyan, number one, had a reputation of being soft. He was critical of Stalin's repressions, and he had a reputation of sheltering many people and shielding many people from these repressions. People would go to Mikoyan asking, can you do something to protect me or to kind of protect my family? At some point, Mikoyan could only do so much, but he actually tried to protect many people, and he did protect many people at this time. Stalin didn't like this and wanted to test his loyalty. And he sent uh, Mikoyan down to Yerevan on September 20th, 1937. Now, at the beginning of this podcast, I said that date, September 20th, 1918, what happened? That was the date that the 26 Boku Commissars were shot. Right, so this is Stalin kind of sending a message to Mikoyan. If you don't do what I want, you may end up like the uh, commissars. Right, so Mikoyan went down there. Like I said, he signed off. He basically agreed with the repressions of Melenkov and, and Litvin. I mean, he had no choice. And in addition, he had to sign these lists of repressions, including Danushaverdian, who he tried to save. Another Loritsi, by the way. So Mikoyan, like we know, is Loritsi, and so is Danush Averdian, another great Armenian, uh, you know, Soviet leader and really a, an Armenian patriot uh, in many ways. So after this situation, Mikoyan participated in the uh, rise of a new leader in Soviet Armenia, the appointment of a new leader, Grigory Arutinov, who was a uh, Russian-speaking Armenian from Georgia who came in with Beria's approval. Beria was there, by the way, overseeing the whole thing. On the way to Yerevan, Melenkov consulted with Beria. He stopped off in Tbilisi and made sure that, you know, everything was okay. And Beria um, came uh, to Yerevan as well, too. As a matter of fact, by the time Melenkov came into Yerevan, Beria was waiting for him. Now, this is all information I know because I've been working in the uh, Repressed Persons Fund in the Armenian Archives. So this is information, by the way, that nobody really talks about or even knows about this episode at all. In any case, Mikoyan, after that, uh, after this appointment of Arutinov, uh, nevertheless felt a great sense of guilt for his role in this uh, episode, and that would, you know, come to have consequences later on. During the war years, Mikoyan was involved with, you know, supply to, you know, help assist the Soviet war effort. But as the time went on, uh, Stalin became increasingly more distrustful of Mikoyan. And especially on decisions such as the deportation of the Chechens and the English. So we know about our good friends, the Chechens and the English. Mikoyan recommended they have autonomy. The diabolical Beria, 
as we know, decided during the war to deport all the Chechens and the English from their homes to Central Asia. Not only them, a whole bunch of other different nationalities from North Caucasus. And also to take some of their territories and give them to Georgia. So this is what happened. Horrible suffering. Uh, people who refused to leave their homes or who were living in inaccessible villages, those villages were just burned down, uh, you know, at the, at the command of Beria. And uh, so this is what ended up happening. And in the decision to deport the Chechens and the English, Mikoyan dissented on this. This is very interesting. He still kind of felt a kind of a loyalty. Now, he signed off on many documents, uh, you know, which was par for the course for Stalin's inner circle at the time. But he uh, dissented on this, which is really quite interesting, because he felt maybe a sense of obligation to these people. So what ended up happening is uh, Mikoyan, uh, after this, you know, Stalin increasingly uh, distrusted him. Then there was also, after the war, the affair, the Leningrad affair, now, the Leningrad Party leadership, as a result of the war, became very, very popular in the Soviet Union, especially Alexei Kuznetsov, right? Now, why was the Leningrad leadership so popular? Because, I mean, if you had survived a Nazi blockade, you would be pretty popular too. And that's, that's how they were seen. So, and actually, Leningrad, by the way, had a history, by the way, of challenging Stalin's uh, popularity or having the perception of challenging Stalin's popularity because Sergei Kirov also was from the Leningrad leadership and we know what happened to him in 1934. What ended up uh, happening is uh, Alexei Kuznetsov, his daughter, Ala Kuznetsova, she fell in madly in love with the young Sergo Mikoyan and they had a romance. And even as Stalin was pursuing the case against, you know, Alexei Kuznetsov, Mikoyan did not prevent this romance from blossoming and actually protected Ala Kuznetsova. This is a very important history. And so Mikoyan still was in the business of trying to protect people as much as he could. Uh, unfortunately, you know, Ala Kuznetsova, she did not live long because in the 1950s, she ended up, you know, suffering from leukemia and she ended up dying young, very young. So it's another kind of tragic uh, story, so to speak. And she was very, very, you know, young, beautiful woman. And, and so, but that's another, you know, chapter. Anyway, so in 1950, so you also have to look at the context of what's happening in the USSR after the war. The Soviet people are jubilant. They just defeated, uh, you know, Nazi Germany, horrible fascist genocidal state, which not only was responsible for, you know, the Holocaust, killing six million Jews, but also really kind of inflicting, you know, genocide against the Slavic people, uh, you know, Russians, Ukrainians, Belarusians, and so on and so forth. So they had defeated, you know, this evil of Nazism. And the hope was in the Soviet Union that now we defeated this Nazism, now we can democratize. Now maybe Stalin will be open to changing the system. Well, that did not happen. Stalin actually doubled down on repressions. And so you had things like, of course, as I just mentioned, the Leningrad affair, you had, you know, the Zhdanov doctrine. So Zhdanov, who was Stalin's right-hand man, was purging the culture, the Soviet culture. You had the doctor's plot against the Jewish doctors. And so Stalin was, in fact, increasing repressions, and he became increasingly paranoid himself in these early years of the Cold War. And uh, so he died in 1953, March 1953. And there was immediately a succession struggle. Now, the two major contenders for the struggle were Beria and Khrushchev. 
Amberia originally, you know, was trying to kind of do, make moves that would make him look like, I'm a reformer, maybe I'm, I'm going to kind of liberalize things and, and whatnot. He freed prisoners, you know, from the camps. He freed, uh, you know, he had a general amnesty. Now, he didn't distinguish between political prisoners and regular, you know, uh, you know common criminals. So that's, that's an important uh, thing to note. But Beria was doing these moves more or less cosmetically because he himself was not really, as we know, a Democrat in his view and his you know, ideas. And uh, in fact, many people in the Soviet leadership were terrified of Beria. What would he do if he took over the Soviet Union? What would that be like? And not only them, actually many people in the society were afraid of Beria because when Beria was finally outmaneuvered by Khrushchev and arrested in June 1953, the, um, all sorts of letters began flowing in. And this is actually where, where this history gets interesting. All sorts of letters began flowing in, you know, from people who uh, now felt comfortable, you know, calling for the rehabilitation of relatives. So there was a sense that now Beria is, is under arrest. Now justice can be served. And especially many, many, many letters came to the desk of Anastas Mikoyan. So Mikoyan began receiving many, many letters from people who were part of his old Caucasian Bolshevik revolutionary circle. He was, anyway, so Mikoyan at this time, he's a member of the Politburo. He wasn't, so in 1955, he becomes deputy chairman of the Council of Ministers. And then in 1964, he becomes chairman of the Presidium of the Supreme Soviet, which is like the de facto president of the Soviet Union. But at this time, really, he's like a member of the Politburo. He is a, um, you know, high-ranking official. There is also fear that he has actually in, in the final days of Stalin that Stalin's going to purge him. So at the 19th Party Congress, Stalin is attacking him. And it seems like Mikoyan, together with Molotov, that their, you know, heads are on the chopping block, more or less. And so you have that context. But all these letters begin to flow into Mikoyan's desk. And now he's a high-ranking member of the Politburo receiving all these letters. And he begins to kind of take this into account. Now, Mikoyan, since his Yerevan intervention in 1937, was also placed in the position of a Supreme Soviet deputy for nationalities representing Yerevan. Now, this was more or less a ceremonial position, but during this period of what we know as the Thaw, or Otepel, or Zinhali Jamanak, Mikoyan uh, basically decided to make this position more meaningful and more meaningful for Armenia specifically. Um, so what ended up happening, he received all these letters, and Mikoyan decided that he had to act. He had to make some gesture signaling to the people of the Soviet Union that big change would be on the way, and that the cases of many of these people would be uh, you know, adequately investigated, and that rehabilitations would follow. So on March 11, 1954, Mikoyan came to Yerevan, and delivered a major speech uh, where he called for a more kind of, first and foremost, more liberal line toward nationalities, a more flexible line. He condemned this idea of national nihilism, so indifference to nationality concerns. He called for the republication of the works of Rafi and Patkanyan. And then after a brief pause, he dropped a complete bombshell and mentioned the name of our great poet, Yegesha Charents. And the hall of, uh, completely exploded in applause for about uh, 40 seconds. It's really, really remarkable audio from the Armenian archives. 
And so Mikoyan, at this point, you know, not only does he call for the rehabilitation of Chaudens, he also calls for resurrecting the memory of Miasni Khan and, and, and so on and so forth. But one week after he gives this speech, on March 18th, 1954, a kind of a reconsideration commission is established in Soviet Armenia uh, in the name of Mikoyan with the leading Soviet Armenian leaders of the day. That includes the first secretary, Sorrentov Masyan, but also Yakov Zorobian and Anton Kochinian. And this was really, for the first time, one of the first uh, kind of rehabilitation commissions in the USSR. And so Mikoyan, together, uh, you know, with the Soviet Armenian leaders, begins this process of rehabilitation. If you go to the Russian archives, you'll see all the information where he is going through lists of all these names, checking them off. He is very, very interested in this process of kind of, uh, you know, rehabilitation of former political prisoners. Not only that, uh, Mikoyan also, as we know, had great connections with the Shamian family. And so Shamian's son, Levon Shamian, who, or Lev Shamian, who was the editor of the great Soviet encyclopedia, together with Mikoyan, began hosting gulag returnees uh, at, at the Shamian residence on the Moscow embankment. And you can talk to, actually, Tatiana Shamian, who was Lev Shamian's daughter. Uh, she's in Moscow, and now she's, you know, involved with oriental sciences today, and, and, and she's a great, one of the, the leading researcher of India in Russia. And... Um, she can recount this whole history. And she uh, basically, when I was visiting her in Moscow, she was telling me uh, all sorts of stories about, you know, how this was. You would have people like Alexei Snegov come to the apartment. You would have people like Olga Shatanovskaya, who actually, by the way, Tatiana Shamian described her as, she called her, referred to her as Totia Olya, basically meaning Aunt Olya. That's how close they were. Now, this was somebody who was a survivor of the Gulag. And together, they would talk with Shamian and Mikoyan, and they convinced them that we have to bring this up to Khrushchev to, you know, condemn Stalin, that you, it is absolutely necessary. This is what Snegov said, we have to condemn Stalin. So what ended up happening is they talked to Khrushchev, that Mikoyan and Shamian brought Khrushchev in to listen to Shatanovskaya and uh, Snegov, and they basically told him, you know, the true horrors of the gulag life. Now, this is something that needs to be clarified. They were not unaware, of course, of the repressions. They were not unaware of the great purge, Mikoyan and, and Khrushchev. But in terms of the sheer horror of gulag life, of everyday gulag life, which you have to live to experience, it's really that terrible. They really opened their eyes to the full extent of the Stalinist, uh, you know, terror. And so at this point, uh, Khrushchev, who already was evolving toward this idea of the ne necessity of condemning Stalin, really began bringing these former political prisoners into his fold as kind of like a uh, form of political support, that they were some of his key supporters and key advisors on this effort to denounce Stalin. So at the 20th Party Congress in February 1956, now that was what I was just describing all took place in 1954. It's two years already, you know, before uh, this, this condemnation happens. So it is at the party, 20th Party Congress of the Communist Party in February 1956 that Khrushchev gives a blistering denunciation of Stalin. And as a matter of fact, Mikoyan opens the floor for him, that Mikoyan actually was the first person there who criticizes Stalin 
to some extent. He's criticizing Stalin's approach toward history with the short course of, of Soviet history. And after Mikoyan gave his speech, his brother Artyom reproached him, saying, why would you have to condemn Stalin like that? Why would you say such negative things? And Mikoyan said, well, if you didn't like that, uh, you know, stay tuned because Khrushchev is going to give a speech and he's really, you know, going to go to town on Stalin, right? And this is what happened. Uh, the great anti-Stalin speech on the cult of personality and its consequences. Khrushchev basically, you know, kind of laid into Stalin, condemned him for his cult of personality, for his crimes, for his abuses of power. And this set the stage for de-Stalinization, which, by the way, in Armenia was very well received. In fact, many, uh, you know, youth in the Armenian Communist Party and at the universities, like at Yerevan State University, demanded actually they go even further and, uh, you know, remove Stalin's body from the, you know, mausoleum uh, to really kind of dismiss, uh, you know, the Stalinist bureaucracy to unify Artsakh with Armenia, uh, to condemn the Istanbul pogrom, and so on and so forth. But the reaction in Georgia was not as, you know, you know, warm, let's put it that way, that the Georgians actually were very angry that, you know, their beloved Soso was being condemned by Khrushchev. And so you had actually a riot in Tbilisi, and it was eventually, you know, brought under control by the Soviet authorities, and so on and so forth. But you had that. But nevertheless, Mikoyan became a major advocate with Khrushchev, and these former political prisoners, known as Khrushchev Zeks, you know, Zeki, this idea of the kind of the former prisoners, in this effort to de-Stalinize the Soviet society, and also make major reforms. Mikoyan also was involved with Khrushchev on reforming the Soviet nationality policy to give republics and autonomous entities more power, more control. And the height of this was Khrushchev's vision to create a new Soviet constitution that would turn the USSR into like a democratic socialistic state. And his idea was socialist democracy. This was Khrushchev's talking point, that we need to have socialist democracy in the Soviet Union and to devolve more power to local entities, to give more power to local entities, because the centralized system under Stalin was not so efficient. Even though that system persisted into the Khrushchev era, Khrushchev wanted to very badly devolve the power to local authorities. Because actually, that's more efficient. When you have such a large country as the Soviet Union, that at one point borders Norway, and the other point borders North Korea, you're going to want to devolve power because you can't control everything, right? Stalin had that aspiration to control everything, but it's almost not possible. And it isn't possible, really. I shouldn't say it's, it's almost not possible. It isn't possible. So Khrushchev realized we need to devolve more power to the local republics, to workers, and so on and so forth. And Mikoyan actually was the head of the commission for the constitution that would completely revamp the kind of Soviet... Uh, you know, federal or union state, really. And in these uh, documents, if you go to the Russian archives, uh, there, there's extensive documentation of this effort. Uh, Yakov Zorobian, the Armenian first secretary, was involved with this commission, as was the Georgian first secretary, as was the Uzbek first secretary. And so really the idea was to bring as many people to the table from the different parts of the Soviet Union as possible to talk over these issues and to talk over a major reform that would devolve more powers to the republics and to, you know, autonomous regions and to really create a real representative system in the Soviet Union. 
And the discussions over these issues are really, really fantastic. And, and they're really, really um, fascinating to read because it shows you that the political processes within the Soviet Union were much more dynamic than what you might assume. So it, it really is, is quite interesting. But unfortunately, in, in preparation for these major constitutional changes, Khrushchev even went so far as to appoint Mikoyan to be chairman of the Presidium of the Supreme Soviet, which was the de facto president of the Soviet Union. So you can even say an Armenian was the head of the Soviet Union at one point, right? So this is really, really quite interesting. And as a matter of fact, during one of his visits, he was in, you know, Zengazor, Mikoyan, and the people, uh, Anton Kochinian recalled in his memoirs, were like, you know, overjoyed that here their native son had risen to the top and became the head of the great Soviet Union. So that's how people were looking at this, that, that he was, you know, the president, so to speak. And that, that label, a president, by the way, has very, very powerful implications. Anyway, so um, you have this situation where Mikoyan and Khrushchev were leading these major political reforms in the Soviet Union. Um, and also the Khrushchev era was one of greater you know, investment in social needs, a greater investment in housing, these sorts of things. Um, not so much uh, you know, excessive investment, let's say, in, in the military. So what you ended up having is, and even though Khrushchev, by the way, he was supported by the military, he, Zhukov was one of his major supporters. Um, but then, unfortunately, uh, you know, many people within the Soviet leadership were dissatisfied with Khrushchev and some of his erratic behavior, especially in terms of foreign policy. The whole Cuban Missile Crisis was, uh, you know, too much for, for many people. And also the... Um, you know, kind of shifting around of bureaucrats that Khrushchev wanted to kind of, you know, make sure the Soviet system did not, you know, stagnate. So he wanted to move, you know, bureaucrats from one place to another. And the bureaucrats didn't really like this. And so Khrushchev was overthrown in a de facto coup in October 1964. And this, the major leader of the coup would become the next Soviet leader, Mr. Brezhnev, right? And um, Brezhnev and company kept Mikoyan in for about a year. Mikoyan did not support this coup. Mikoyan was allied with Khrushchev. He stayed loyal to Khrushchev. But Brezhnev, uh, they kept him in for one more year. And then, you know, Mikoyan was forced out as well. So that is kind of the history of Anastas Mikoyan, the great Armenian uh, Soviet leader from Ilyich to Ilyich. And also somebody, by the way, who was a major lobbyist. I didn't really talk about this that much but a major lobbyist for Armenian national interests in Armenia, right? So there are a lot of things he did that I didn't even touch on in this podcast. Uh, he was a lobbyist for Armenian interests. If Yakov Zorobian or Anton Kochinian or somebody like this needed something in Moscow, Mikoyan could like talk to people, maybe get the funding uh, for Yerevan. So that was number one. But also number two, he was a great international diplomat. He was instrumental in defusing the Cuban Missile Crisis, which I mentioned, uh, you know, just now. Um, and so, yeah, he was, you know, uh, really a major, major figure in the Soviet history and in the Armenian history. The one thing he could not uh, resolve for Armenia was the desire to unite Artsakh Nagorno-Karabakh with Armenia, even though he uh, supported Armenian leaders, including Arutinov, uh, on this uh, question, or Anton Kochinian also on this question. In the end, he was unable to, uh, you know, uh, change the situation because Baku vetoed it. It was different versus, let's say, Crimea, 
where, you know, hey, the Ukrainian leadership and the Russian leadership, they were getting along at the time, not so much today as we know. Uh, and uh, they, uh, it, was, it, was, it was not hard for the Russians to concede Crimea to, to Ukraine. Uh, there was, it was easy to have a mutual agreement in that regard, but, uh, you know, Artsakh, Nagorno-Karabakh, this is a completely different, uh, you know, situation, different dynamics. But overall, Mikoyam was a major, major figure for the Soviet army in history, and uh, really a great statesman, and he is a figure that we should remember uh, in this uh, overview of seven making history in Armenia. Thank you.